This morning, I would like to ask the question, what is David and Goliath's story really about? What is it really about? And um, my goal is to find the true me- biblical meaning of the story of David and Goliath. The story is often told as an inspirational tale, you know, the small against the big. Um, but today, I'm going to try and bring out what I think is the biblical meaning of the story. Now, if you were to to Google the word Goliath, you get all kinds of things. I'll show you some of the images that come up, but it's used for anything that's big. Um, here's a, a sumo wrestler, and his nickname is Goliath. And uh, there's an insect called Goliath. I won't keep this on for very long because it may trigger some of you. Um, you get cartoons of Goliath that are sort of like that, showing um, a massive Goliath and a, and a tiny little David. That's the kind of imagery that we see. And we're going to see in a minute how wrong this is. So let's uh, ask what's going on at this time. Uh, uh, right at the moment, uh, uh, when this story is told, there is um, a group of of uh, invaders who are constantly attacking the Israelites. They came down from the north, and they are just over over decades. They're attacking Israel, and they're just uh, they're just um, destroying them and 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 killing people and taking things. And we're coming to a point now when they've uh, they're they're attacking Israel, and they've decided that they're going to mount a challenge where they're going to send out a champion. And this champion's going to come out and they say, look, if you can send out your champion, then instead of everybody being involved in this battle, then uh, just, you know, just the two of them can fight it out and that can sort out who wins for everybody. And uh, the, the the problem is, of course, that their champion is absolutely, is just huge. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but uh, this is a vivid scene where for 40 days, this champion has been coming out and challenging challenging the Israelite army, and they're just in terror. What's going to happen? Who's going to come out and defend them? And he defies them, and they have no one who can save them. So what I'd like to do today is to, first of all, to ask what was God doing in Israel at that time? And then I would like to look at David's true understanding of what God was doing. I'd like to look at our champion and then finally putting this into practice. So what was God doing in Israel at this time? To understand this, we have to go right back to the beginning. So in the beginning, God created the world. And we know that soon after the creation of the world, there was Adam and Eve fell and disobeyed God and, and set up a a, um, a a rebellion against God, but it was instigated by Satan. And this this uh, attack by Satan on God, uh, God said that um, one day uh, one of the descendants of Eve is actually going to destroy you, Satan. He's going to destroy you. And um, he said, uh, you know, you're going to attack his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And one of the descendants of Eve. So the story went on through um, 
the, the, earth, the earth got more and more wicked. God uh, wiped the earth clean of these wicked people and started again with Noah. And then we had all kinds of things, um, uh, demonic and, and, and idolatrous. And God said, I'm going to choose one man who I'm really going to use as a demonstration to the whole world of who I am and what I can do. And this man he chose was Abraham. And Abraham was the father of faith. And the goal of Abraham was that he and his offspring would be a light to the nations, a light to the whole world. Well, Abraham, he had uh, Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And we know the story. They went down into Egypt and then they were there hundreds of years in slavery, and they came out at the time of the Exodus. Moses led them out. They went across the wilderness, and 40 years later, they were in the Promised Land. But they were ruled at that time, as they went into the Promised Land, not by kings, but by judges. I wonder if any, any of you know the difference between a judge and a king. What's the difference between someone, not a modern day judge, but somebody judging in those days and a king? Well, I would suggest that um, the king is sovereign. They are the head of state and also they're, um, they have a dynasty. So their children rule in, in their place and so on. Um, whereas a judge is not the ultimate authority. And the idea was that the judge should be judging under God and God would rule through the judge, and the judge would just be putting God's will into practice. And that was the idea, but uh, it didn't work very well. In fact, often the judges were so corrupt, and even the best of them could be very corrupt. So the the, the, the book of First uh, Samuel starts off with Eli and Hannah and the story when you know she's praying in the temple and he thinks that she's drunk. Well, what does it tell you about the state of the people who prayed in those days? You know, the coming to the temple. And what does it also tell you about um, Eli's discernment? Not things weren't in a very good state. Worse than that, Eli's sons, who actually wanted to come after him, even though they weren't supposed to, they were abusing the women who came to the temple. It was an awful situation things had got to. Um, and there was a recognition that something was wrong with the system. And in some respects, they did need a king, if it was a king after God's own heart. Um, but God said he would rule over them. And we have this tension set up. Would God rule over them or would there be a king? And back in Deuteronomy, they were told that they would one day have a king ruling over them. So how was this tension to be to be resolved? Well, it would be resolved because God himself eventually would be king in the in the person of his son, Jesus. And so Jesus would be the king, but also God. So you would have a king ruling over them and God ruling over them at the same time. So I'm going to do now uh, a quick survey of uh, the first 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, because the story we've got to, to going to be looking at is in chapter 17. So the first 16 chapters, first three chapters show the terrible state that Israel is in. And I talked about the story of Eli and his sons and what things were like in those days. And then we have a, a story in chapters four through six 
of the Ark of the Covenant where they decided to treat it like an object of superstition and take it out into battle with them on the, the pretext it would be like a talisman, that they couldn't lose the battle if they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. And that didn't work very well. God did not like being manipulated like that. And the Ark was captured and eventually came back again. Um, in chapter 7, a great victory was won through Samuel, but his sons were worse than ever. And in chapter 8, Israel demanded a king, but why did they want a king? To be like the nations. They wanted a king to be like the nations. <clears throat> and um, the, God said, you know, this is a rejection of me, actually. You want political strength and military strength. They wanted a tangible power, something that was visible rather than trusting in God. And so chapters 9 and 10, we saw Saul chosen as the king. What do we know about Saul? I'm going to just show you a clip now that uh, when I preached a sermon exactly five years ago today, when I asked what Saul was like. So I'm going to watch the clip. Uh, what do we know about Saul? Can you tell me about anything about Saul? Yeah? He was head and shoulders taller. Mark, could you just come out here? Okay, so I do want you just imagine that if if he's if he is Saul, just stand at the set this way. Yeah. Now I would be kind of head and shoulders, so like head and shoulders, I'd be down here. That's how much taller he'd be. Do you know what else it said about him? He was very handsome. So there you go. <laughs> so so, uh, so this guy fits the bill as Saul very well here. So uh, there you know, there you, you can tell. Now you have a picture of what Saul was like. Head and shoulders above everyone and very handsome. So, um, chapters 11 and 12, uh, God reveals the solution that there's going to be a king, but the king will be under God in covenant. At least that's the theory. However, Saul then rejects this and refuses to obey God. And so the, even the, the idea of how a king could work gets rejected by Saul. Then in um, chapter 16, God raises up his own servant by having David anointed by Samuel. And that story of David's called in from the field, he's out with the sheep, he's called in and he's anointed king. Um, then we have in chapter 17 this great test of Israel. Um, there's, it's they're tested for 40 days. It's a period of testing in the Bible. Lots of things that are 40 days long are like a period of testing. And uh, uh, who was going to be their champion? So Goliath had come out as the champion, and uh, he he is taller than than the average the average man, but he's not like pictured in that picture. He's kind of quite tall, maybe head and shoulders above most people. So. Who would be the natural champion for Israel to choose to come out against them? Who should have been there? Israel's giant. What happened to this security that they'd chosen, this outward visible symbol of strength that they wanted to be like the nations? He completely failed them. And this is significant. So here we have then um, Goliath facing them, challenging them, and Saul should have been out there being the one who was 
defending God's people. And this speaks to us because all of us have a tendency to look on outward things for our confidence. We like the tangible. And it's so hard to trust God as our provider, an invisible God as our provider, and so easy for us to look at the nations and practice their ideas. So that was a quick overview of what God was doing in Israel at that time. And now we're going to look at David and his understanding of the situation and then look at our champion and put it into practice. So what about David? So let's have a look at uh, the these verses here. I'm going to... Uh, sorry. So David got up early in the morning and entrusted the flock to someone else who would watch over it. After loading up, he went just as Jesse had instructed him as his father. He arrived at the camp as the army was going out to battle lines, shouting its battle cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up their battle lines opposite one another. After David had entrusted his cargo to the care of the supply officer, he ran to the battlefront. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were doing. As he was speaking with them, the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, was coming up from the battle lines of the Philistines. He spoke the way he usually did, and David heard it. When all the men of Israel saw this man, they retreated from his presence and were very afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? He does so defy Israel. He does so to defy Israel. But the king will make the man who can strike him down very wealthy. He'll give him his daughter in marriage and he'll make his father's house exempt from tax obligations in Israel. Um, This is a place where we see that David is not a little boy. Sometimes he's portrayed as a little child. But here you're going to see he's very interested in the prospect of getting a wife. And in fact, he does get given a wife as a result of this operation. He does get the king's daughter to marry. And so he's, even though they married pretty young often in those days, he's still um, not a preteen. So uh, this is, this is uh, David then. In verse 26, David asked the men who were standing near him, what will be done for the man who strikes down this Philistine and frees Israel from the humiliation? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? The soldiers told him what had been promised, saying, this is what will be done for the man who can strike him down. When David's oldest brother, Eliab, Heard him speaking to the men, he became angry with David and said, Why have you come down here? To whom did you entrust those few sheep in the desert? I'm familiar with your pride and deceit. You come down here to watch the battle. Sometimes older brothers can be very um, problematic. I don't know if you've got a difficult older brother. David obviously did. Um, David replied, What have I done now? Can't I say anything? 
Then he turned from those who were nearby to someone else and asked the same question, but they gave him the same reply as before. When David's words were overheard and reported to Saul, he called for him. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied to David, You aren't able to go against the Philistine and fight him. You're just a youth. He'd been a warrior from his youth. David replied to Saul, Your servant has been a shepherd for his father's flock. Whenever a lion or bear would come and carry off a sheep from the flock, I would go after it and strike it down and rescue the sheep from its mouth. If it rose up against me, I would grab it by its jaw, strike it and kill it. Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So this is quite interesting that David's not coming to this out of a vacuum. He's had an experience with a God who has, it seems, given him supernatural victory in these situations. He has come out of a walk with God where he's trusting that God will protect him and he's seen God protect him in these instances. And so he's coming out of this with that history. And I think this is important for us that if we have a history with God, if we have experiences where God has been with us, then that can strengthen our faith as we move forward in life. David went on to say, The Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. You don't know whether he's being sarcastic or or serious there. Um, Then Saul clothed David with his own fighting attire and put a bronze helmet on his head. He also put body armor on him. David strapped on his sword over his fighting attire and tried to walk around, but he was not used to them. David said to Saul, I can't walk in these things, I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Um, Why do you think Saul wanted David wearing his armor, which would presumably be recognized, and his helmet over his head. Why do you think that was? Do you think possibly Saul is thinking that um, if by any chance he does win the battle, people might think it's me. If he doesn't win it, well, you know, I can say, well, I just lent him my armor. It's nothing's lost. I think that's quite possibly what was behind this lending of the armor and the helmet business. He took his staff in his hand, picked out five smooth stones from the stream, placed them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, took his sling in hand and approached the Philistine. The Philistine kept coming closer to David with his shield bearer walking in front of him. When the Philistine looked carefully at David, he despised him, for he was only a ruddy and handsome youth. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you're coming after me with sticks? Then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come here to me, so I can give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the field. And pretty graphic, wasn't that, they? Um, so David replied to the Philistine, You are coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I am coming against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies, whom you have 
defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give the corpses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. Then all the earth will realize that Israel had a God. So David had a clear understanding of God's plan for Israel, um, probably through the Spirit revealing it to him. But there, it, would, it was there in the scriptures. It was there in the writings up to that time. Um, in Joshua 4, 23 and 24, it says, He has done this so that all the nations of the earth might recognize the Lord's power. <clears throat> and the... Uh, the idea then of being a light to the nations has been there since the time of Abraham. It's, uh, and um, that Israel to be destroyed will be putting out this light. And all this assembly will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you into our hand. <coughs> so, um, unless we grasp God's God, the role that Israel was to play in God's plan, we won't understand various things that God did with Israel because they were supposed to be not um, just for their own purposes, but as a light for the entire world to let come to know God. And so the, the world was supposed to see what was happening there and come to God. And some people did, like the Queen of Sheba did. Um, and probably others did as well. But when we understand that, we will understand more of the reason for God's dealings with the nation. So, for example, taking them into captivity because they had been such a bad representation of who God was. They were so failing that it was actually destroying God's name by leaving them where they were. And so by taking them to captivity and then effectively purifying the nation, they were once, a, once again able to be a light to the nations to a certain extent. Um, so, uh, this, um, so this situation here, the way that the, the, the people were of God were being mocked and laughed at really made David angry. He was angry that God's name should be brought down like this and these people who worship other gods should be, should be just, um, able to scoff at God's people. It made him angry because he loved God and he, he cared for God's reputation. Does this make you angry? It should make you angry when, when things happen that make people mock God and when, when unfortunately bad things happen in the church and, and this brings uh, unfortunately, um, the reputation of God down. And this should upset us because we should be concerned for God's reputation because he is the only hope of this world. Of course, ultimately, God is going to look after his reputation, but we are part of that process as David is here. Um, <clears throat> but how is he so sure that he is the one who's going to save Israel at this point. How does he know that? Well, it's because he's been anointed. And somehow, whether he's had, a, he's studied it or whether he's got a special understanding from the Spirit, he can tell that he's actually in the line 
from Eve, um, the line of those, the anointed ones, who are going to represent God and, and, and um, are going to carry the, the, the line of God until God was to save the world. Ultimately, of course, we know through Jesus. The Philistine drew steadily closer to David to attack him, while David quickly ran towards the battle line to attack the Philistine. David reached his hand into the bag and took out a stone. He slung it, striking the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deeply into his forehead, and he fell down with his face to the ground. David prevailed over the Philistine with just the sling and the stone. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David did not even have a sword in his hand. A sling, if those of you don't know, is just a, a loop of leather, a pouch at the end, and they would put a stone into the loop and then swing it round and round and round. And when it was going fast enough, let go of one of the ends of the leather and the stone would then be loose and it would fly out. So it's very simple in theory, but in practice, to, to, the timing to hit something accurately would be quite phenomenal. And here he strikes the Philistine in the forehead and he falls down. Quite amazing. So this is the story. And this takes us um, to the end here. David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grabbed Goliath's sword, drew it from its sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they ran away. So this brings us to the main teaching of the passage. We've looked at what God was doing in Israel at this time, the history that comes through to this point of what's going on in Israel with the, with the king and so on. We've looked at how David really understood the situation. He understood it was it was so important that Israel represented God to the nations, and this, what was happening, was the opposite of what God's plan was. And uh, now we're going to see, we're going to look at what the spiritual meaning of this is, and um, then we're going to look at how we can put this into practice. So, there was a promise made to Eve, as I said just earlier, that one of her descendants would crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan. Um, and there would be, a, there would be battling between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the, uh, or the, the, um, the, the, the evil one throughout the ages. And uh, we see this come to a head at various points. For example, when Pharaoh um, decided to kill all of the male children in Israel. It was really Satan trying to kill the one who would be carrying the line to Jesus. And he, it was like a broad brush attack. And of course, he didn't succeed in killing all the men because, you know, otherwise, uh, the, the, the line couldn't have got through. But, but through Moses, the nation was saved. But, uh, many times throughout history of Israel, Satan would attack. And once he knew who was the line of the anointed ones that Jesus would come through, he particularly attacked that. And we can see when it was known that Jesus would be born, when the wise men had this um, uh, revelation that Jesus was born. And in, in Bethlehem, we see Satan working through Herod and destroying all of the, the, 
the children there, all of the male children again, trying to do the same thing to wipe out the enemy. So we see this attack, this this fighting between the two lines. Um, and David was a picture of Christ. He was the anointed one. So anointed actually means Christ. It's the same word. The word Christ is Greek for anointed. The Hebrew is Messiah. And the same word is is um, linking David, who was anointed, to Christ. And so um, he's the one who is carrying this line. And Goliath um, is the enemy. And he is, if you like, typifying Satan. And this isn't just an interesting story in history. This is a picture of the, um, the, the champion actually cutting off the head of the enemy. This is, this is, um, it's interesting that, um, David went for his head. He went for Goliath's head, not just with the stone, but then cut his head off, uh, really fulfilling the prophecy to Eve that her descendant would would destroy the head of the evil one. And so this is, if you like, is it's a mini picture of what Christ would do on the cross with Satan, how Christ would destroy the power of Satan. And so what you have then is uh, David prophetically prophetically acting out the battle that would happen on the cross. And uh, he is victorious in this battle in the same way that Jesus is victorious. Now, it's very important to understand this because it's going to dramatically apply to how we put this story, how we apply this story to us. Um, one other thing, um, it mentions, a little aside, it mentions when it describes Goliath that he had scaly armour. And that would have been armour with um, metal discs sewn onto a leather coat. It was described as being scaly. Um, <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? Since he's representing the serpent, the one that, um, the one that, uh, the, the anointed one should be destroying. So uh, how is this uh, then mapping onto our lives? Well, one common application of the David and Goliath would make us David. You know, you've got to be a David. You've got to fight against the Goliaths in your life. But that is not what this is about at all. What this is saying is, in fact, we are not like David. We are like the Israelites who have a, a champion in Jesus he destroys our enemies for us. We put our, we've put our trust in, in souls, in, in like, uh, our own champions and they failed. But when we put our trust in the one God provides for us, he's not left us, um, in our own failure, but he's provided a champion for us. Um, so this event was not to teach Israel that it needed more shepherd boys. This was, you're even more faithful shepherd boys. No, it needed God that humans would always fail by themselves. And this is a glorious message because we can feel very alone. We're, we can feel by ourselves. We can feel weak. We can feel unable to win the battle. But this is telling us it, we don't have to win the battle. Jesus is our champion. He will go out for us and has gone out for us. He's defeated sin on our behalf. Um, so what do we do? What's our part in this? Well, our part is to, to have the joy of entering into the victory. You look at what the Israelites did. 
Then the men of Israel and Judah charged forward, shouting a battle cry. They chased the Philistines to the valley and to the very gates of Ekron. And so this is our role. We have to enter into the victory that Jesus, our champion, has won for us. This is the message of David and Goliath. <clears throat> when we're threatened by temptation, we feel there's no possible way out. We have terrible fear. We don't know how to tackle it. We have Jesus. He has won. Uh, we can overcome in the power of his victory. This is the true meaning. Now, do we do this passively? Do we just kind of sit back and say, oh, no, let Jesus do it? Well, actually, um, although uh, Jesus is the champion, he's our champion, we are actually involved in this battle, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1.29 about how Jesus' work and our work connects together. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So when Christ wins a victory, he doesn't do it with us being passive, but he, he actually inside us, energizes us and wins a big victory through us. So uh, one more point. Uh, were the Israelites doing a good job at trusting God? at this time in history. Well, no, they weren't. They were doing a terrible job. Um, nevertheless, God still saved them. God still provided a champion. And uh, this is encouraging for us because sometimes we're as bad as they are. We put our trust in, 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 in humans and we fail. But God's faithfulness is bigger than our history of failing. God's faithfulness goes beyond that and God, God's commitment to us. And so this doesn't depend on us being good enough. This just depends on Jesus coming and doing his work. So uh, let's look at where we're up to then. Um, we've looked at what God was doing in Israel throughout the whole of history up to that point. We looked at how David understood what the really what this conflict was about and the stakes that were there, and this was God's battle, and how he fitted in. We saw that the, the, the true meaning of this is that David was prophetically d demonstrating what Jesus has done to save us. And now we're going to look at how we can work this out in practice in our lives. And I just have one more slide here. How should this affect our lives? Well, the first thing... I want to say is, if you're not following Jesus, if he's not your champion, then you need to trust in him. Because ultimately, there's nothing that can save you. You're not going to be strong enough because the Goliaths will come and they will destroy you unless Jesus is your champion. So you need to trust him as your savior. <clears throat> the second thing I think we can look at is that, that idea that David had that this was he was so concerned for God's reputation and that the behavior of Israel would, would, would demonstrate what God was like. And we need to be conscious of our behavior, that we are a light to unbelievers. As, as we saw in John's gospel, Jesus said, you know, this, this is how the world will know the love of God through your love. And so we need to be conscious of that. We need to take that in and get some of that emotion that David had when he was so concerned for um, God's reputation. Um, the next thing is that 
I think we need to have confidence from this story. This same Christ is in us. This champion is in us. Um, Paul said he could do all things through Christ had strength, strengthened him. Um, then a question we can ask, Israelites wanted a king. What is our equivalent to wanting a king? What's, uh, and I've been pondering this, how, how this relates to us. And I think that, um, uh, what the nations say to us now is often actually through advertising. We get so, such a bombardment of what it means to live a successful life. And I would say, um, it's the message is something like the nations have these things. Why can't I? So it's like envy. That's, that's what we're tempted to have. Like I need to have these things. And, uh, I think that the answer to this is to trust in Jesus as your king because he is better than all of the world has. So they wanted the security of the king like the nations. And uh, we we are called by this story to put our trust in God. Um, what about our Goliaths? I mean, there are Goliaths in this world. There are Goliaths that we face. And you may be facing right now. Uh, there are health problems that we face. Um, the, the, the major health issues in the world today are a Goliath in many respects. There's, um, there's death of loved ones. Um, there's unemployment or difficulties with our employment. Um, financial problems right now with all the things that are happening. Many people in financial challenges. That's like a Goliath that we're facing. Um, and, uh, there are loneliness. Isolation, which again is an issue that people are facing right now. This is a Goliath. And this story is telling you that in every one of these things, Jesus can be with you. That you're not fighting this alone. He is with you and he cares about you. And so I want to bring these things to God in prayer. And I want to also suggest to you that um, this is something that you could... Um, if you have a particular prayer request coming out of this, you could use the the the, the uh, prayer email that we have for the church, and as, as we talked about in the announcements, and send a prayer request to our prayer team, and we will pray for you. So let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that Jesus may be our king, that he may be our chief joy, that he will be our champion that we look to, that we don't trust in other things. And may our relationship with him mean more than anything else. And we pray, God, that we will show through your victory in our lives and your joy in our lives and your love in our lives, show who you are to the nations, to the people around us, to this dark generation, we pray, Lord, that that we will be so filled with your love and your victory and your peace and your joy that people will see that there is something different. They will see Jesus in us and they will be drawn to Jesus through us. Lord, we cry to, to you for everybody who's here right now listening, who is facing some sort of Goliath right now. Pray, Lord, that you would give them victory in Jesus Christ and enable them to trust him and look to him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.